Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. Welcome back to the MLB.com Satcast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com national editor, Matt Myers. Matt, we are back in town from the All-Star game and trades are already happening. Manny Machado is a Dodger. Uh, Brad Hand and Adam Cinder are going to Cleveland. That one came Simber. out. Simber. Simber. What did I say? Cinder. Oh, I said Simber. Whatever. Uh, there's a lot of relievers who I think are going to get traded who not a lot of people know about, so we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about which contenders have the biggest holes they need to fill. Uh, first, we did both go to Washington, D.C. for the All-Star Game, or for All-Star Weekend. I was there uh, primarily for the Home Run Derby, which we did an alternate broadcast, a StatCast-focused broadcast on ESPN News, which was super fun. It was myself and Jason Benetti, who is the White Sox broadcaster, who is awesome, and Eduardo Perez and... Bill Nye, I got to share a broadcast booth with Bill Nye, and it was everything I wanted and more. There is on his phone a selfie of us, and if he doesn't tweet it, I might actually die. I need that picture. Uh, so I had a blast. Uh, it's it's always so so much fun to be able to just kind of see all the cool baseball people from around. Uh, how was your experience in D.C.? Um, a whirlwind, as usual. Uh, Features game was fun. Taylor Trammell was impressive. I always liked the Features game. Uh, home run derby. You know, I used to be a home run derby curmudgeon, but then they changed the rules and put the clock in. And like, you know, I'm fortunate to be able to 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 go uh, most years. And it's 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 fun on TV. It's an especially a fun event live. Uh, in my opinion, is I feel very fortunate to be able to to see it in person. Uh, and it was again uh, very exciting. Not quite as exciting as Aaron Judge last year, but it sort of felt like, I mean, well, the hometown guy though. It was the hometown guy, but it kind of reminded me of like um, when Vince Carter won the slam dunk contest. And he sort of like elevated the slam dunk contest to this place that no one had ever imagined it could go. And so then like the next few years, people were kind of like, well, you're not as good as Vince Carter. It's sort of like after Aaron Judge, it's kind of really hard to live up to it. But at least Bryce Harper kind of gave us that that new angle of uh, – with, with the hometown guy winning and the place was rocking. Yeah, what I really enjoyed about <clears> it is during the regular season, a lot of times people were like, well, it's a home run. My team put three runs on the board. What do I care how hard it was hit? Well, this is different. Like, there's so many home runs. There's like almost 200 home runs, I think. It's actually really interesting to be able to say, well, this one was hit this hard. Uh, and the distance actually plays a big part in it because you got extra time if you hit it over 440. So it was a blast to uh, call that. And it was just so much more difficult than I thought it would be because the balls were flying so quickly. And it was almost hard to figure out, wait, which home run that I just see? Was that the one that went 440, <laughs> the one that went 450? Um, 
these are good problems to have, by the way. Did you know that Manny Machado is a Dodger? That was like that was the overarching uh, story of the weekend. Is you know would this actually happen before everybody got home? And it came pretty close to happening. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, with, and then of course there was the, the the murmurs that maybe there was a problem with the physical from one of the secondary players. Once you hear it's one of the secondary players, you know that's not going to be a holdup because it's. You know, it's not about Diaz. Diaz, obviously, UCL Diaz was the centerpiece of the deal. Um, <clears throat> MLB Pipeline's number 84 overall prospect, now number two in the Orioles system. Uh, he hit two home runs in the Futures game. Uh, you knew it wasn't – once you knew the holdup wasn't about Diaz, you knew the trade would get done despite the Orioles' uh, long tradition of uh, holding deals up because of medicals. But the deal finally got done officially. Five players from Manny Machado. Um, Four of whom are younger than Manny Machado. Exactly. Which I got a kick out of. Uh, I mean, I think it was a fair deal for both sides. That I don't think the Orioles were going to have an expectation of getting <clears throat> a number one overall prospect at this point. So um, good for them. The Dodgers strength into strength, I think. They they didn't actually have a giant hole. Chris Taylor has played a perfectly fine shortstop. So now he will take time away from Taylor, who will move over to second or outfield. They're in a good spot. Uh, there's a couple of things we need to talk about when it comes to Manny Machado. First and foremost, he's having a fantastic season. He's hitting 315, 387. 575 with 24 home runs. Uh, I like this. His expected weighted on base of 401 and his weighted on base of 400 is almost exactly. So he's not, there's not fortunate. It's not unfortunate. He's earning everything uh, that he has really put out there. He has been uh, a top 10 hitter this year in weighted on base, top 19 hitter in expected weighted on base. has been fantastic, obviously. But what's interesting about this is that he has not been a well-regarded shortstop. He has negative 19 defensive runs saved. That's the lowest among shortstops. It's the same for UZR. And I, you know, I wish I'd had more time this morning to look into this. I wanted to look into this from a StatCast perspective and say, what's the deal here, right? My impression is that he's a below-average shortstop, but I don't think he's a terrible shortstop, right? We know by now to not put a ton of stock into half a season of defensive metrics. And while we've done a lot of work in the outfield, catch probability and everything, uh, we just haven't had the same amount of progress in the infield yet, but we're getting pretty close. So I'm actually hopeful in the next few days, I'll be able to dig into this and look at some of these plays and say, well, here's what's actually happening here. Because obviously we know that whether or not he can play shortstop is going to be a big part of this. But one thing to note, his 25.8 foot per second sprint speed is the slowest of our 43 shortstops with 25 qualified runs. Playing shortstop's not really about top speed necessarily, but there's got to be some kind of correlation. And also, I mean, the, the reality is that like, he came up as a shortstop, but they immediately moved him <clears throat> to third base in deference to J.J. Hardy, uh, who was uh, locked in at shortstop at the time. And, like, the the skills and kind of muscles you use to play the positions are different. You know, like, third base is, you know, you really don't really have to go right all that much. And if you do, it's only, like, one step. Uh, it's much more just, like, quick reactions. The throw angles are different. Like, it's a different position. So, like, if you basically, like, don't really, you know – exercise those muscles for five years, except only sporadically when Machado would kind of go over if Hardy was hurt, like your skills are going to atrophy. And like he developed into more of a third base body type, third base profile. So it it doesn't shock me that like they just like throw him into third base after sort of becoming the – sorry, throw him in a shortstop after becoming this prototypical uh, third baseman and his defensive metrics um, aren't great. Of course, as you noted, I take them with a big grain of salt. It's – you know, three months of defense metrics. Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting. <clears throat> when he came up, I never really thought of him as this enormous power hitter guy. I always thought he'd be like, you know, 20 homers, a billion doubles, pretty good defense. And he's really like turned into a monster power guy. It's not the same player. I mean, I remember when one of his first times he came up, when he, I think he was still a teenager at the time, one of his first games I saw him hit one out. 
to like right center field. And I was just like, 19 year olds aren't. I was actually not, I'm not that surprised because when I saw that, I was like, 19 year olds aren't really supposed to do that. Well, the one thing that's very weird about his uh, last couple of seasons is he's got monster home road splits. Like you might think he played in Colorado if you didn't know any better. Uh, if you look at his numbers dating back to the beginning of 2017 at home, he's hit 314, a 386 on base, 597 slugging. That is a 408 weighted on base. That's basically the equivalent of Nolan Arenado this year, which is obviously fantastic. On the road, dating back to the beginning of last year, 246, 291 on base, 425 slugging. That's a 299 weighted on base. That's basically Jordy Mercer. And no no, no disrespect intended to Jordy Mercer. That's a pretty enormous difference. And I hesitate to say, oh, that's the player he's going to be elsewhere, because I don't think that's true. But if you look back over his career, with the exception of 2016, where his home and road splits were basically about the same, he's had pretty large uh, home field advantage. And I think, you know, everybody thinks of, Camden Yards as something of a hitter's park, and I'm sure that's true. But this is pretty big. This is something that the Dodgers have to at least consider, like what version of Manny Machado they're going to get here. Don't you think? Yeah, it's just, it's it's. I don't I don't have an answer. Yeah, exactly. It's one of those you, know, you don't know. You know, we've talked a little bit before this in the past about you know not just you know altitude and uh, dimensions, but also kind of batter's eye being a factor in how players hit in certain places. So um, you never know exactly what's behind. The um, the split here, but it's it's definitely it's definitely a big number. I'm glad you brought up batter's eye because usually when you look at uh, home field advantage kind of things for hitters, you look at power, right? You say, did I hit more home runs? Did I get more extra base hits? And certainly there's a lot to that. But what was interesting to me, I looked up uh, Machado's numbers both for this year and for his career, and his strikeout and walk numbers are really really different as well. If you look at it this year, at home he's walked 14% of the time. At, on the road, 8% of the time. At home, he struck out 10% of the time. On the road, he struck out 14% of the time. That's just for this year. Uh, it's not quite a stark over his career, but still kind of the same idea. This year at home, he's walked 8% on the road. Or excuse me, for his career, he's walked 8% at home, 6% on the road, struck out 15% at home, 17% on the road. So there's definitely, without even making contact with the ball, you can see there's some kind of effect there for him, whether that's Home field, uh, you know, comfort, sleeping in his own bed, the batter's eyes, you said. I don't really know the answer to that. Uh, but there is a noticeable effect there without even making contact. And I guess, you know, we'll, it, it could just be that. And, you know, maybe it'll take him some time to get used to Dodger Stadium and living in L.A. But I will say this. Uh, the last time he played Dodger Stadium in 2016, he hit a 453-foot home run. There has not been a longer home run hit at Dodger Stadium since that. Let's play a very fun <laughs> game. Let's assume that Machado plays shortstop. Chris Taylor moves over to second base, and Logan Forsythe hits the bench. Maybe Muncie to first, Bellinger to the outfield, right? Is there a below-average Dodger, Dodger hitter in that lineup? A single one? I can tell you the answer. It's no. <laughs> <laughs> they have they have such an enormous amount of depth now, where you figure in the outfield, there, there's Kemp, maybe Bellinger now, Peterson, uh, Tolls, Puig when he's healthy. Uh, they might end up, Verdugo if he comes up, Enrique Hernandez has to play somewhere. <clears throat> really good. They might end up trading one of those guys for a reliever. So, like, by adding more depth to a place they already had depth, now maybe they've strengthened themselves for a reliever. And we're going to talk a lot about relievers <laughs> in a second. They, I mean, the Dodgers, one thing that, that interests me about them is that, like, they keep doing I mean, they, they keep doing that. There's two things. This is, like, the fourth straight year, fourth straight July, they've made a big trade. You know, this year, Machado. Last year, you Darvish. Um, and and also, not as large, but they also got Tony Watson and Tony Sangrani last year. That's too. true. Um, year before that, it was uh, – Rich Hill and J.J. Redick from the A's. And the year before Josh that... Reddick, Josh Sorry, Josh Reddick. I don't know if he's three as well. Yeah. Jay Reddick. And the year before that, it was uh, Alex Wood and Hector Oliveira. 
Uh, no, sorry, Alex Wood in the trade that sent Hector Oliveira. The three that crazy three way. Like Twelve guys in that trade. Yeah. Like Matt Latos was in that trade. Jim Johnson was in that trade. Oliveira was the big name that they they gave up. So they clearly this is something that they keep doing. And one thing the Dodgers have done that's that have done that's found interesting is they've, especially under the previous rules, kind of just hoarded Cuban players because they could. Uh, you can't really do that anymore because there's actually now a strict spending limit. But when you could go over your limit, you know, they brought in a ton of guys, many of whom were kind of busts. Yeah. You had, obviously, Puig worked out pretty well, but then you had Alex Guerrero, you had Oliveras, who was Hector Oliveras, who was a disaster. You're, you're waiting for me to pronounce Arisbel Arabuena. There you go, Arisbel Arabuena. <laughs> you had Yutin um, Diaz, who they just traded. Um, Yadier Alvarez, who they still have in their system. Still, yeah. They still, but I think they've, but they, a lot of these guys have just, they've basically just like, Bought them and just use them as assets, and I feel like the 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 Dodgers have sort of leveraged their financial might in ways that you wouldn't expect. It's not really on free agents because they've actually let some big free major league free agents go. It's been more about signing amateurs when they could spend as much as they wanted amateurs, and also taking on money in contract with Matt Kemp. They did it twice. They basically paid to him to, paid for him to go to San Diego, and they took on his money right. uh, in the trade with the with the with the Braves. Yeah, and you're right. If you look at the uh, last I don't know decade or so of Dodger trades. The biggest prospect that they've traded that they've regretted was probably Carlos Santana. And that was literally 10 years ago. I hated that trade. The moment it was made for Casey Blake, that was a, a kind of a crazy deal. But you look at the other guys that they've dealt, uh, as you mentioned, you know, uh, they got Darvish last year. We don't know how that's going to turn out. But, you know, Frankie Montas has been pretty good for the A's. He's someone you might like to have back. But Hector Oliveira is out of baseball. He'll never play again. Jose De Leon, uh, highly regretted prospect, blew out his arm. They got him for... Logan Forsyth. Forsyth, that didn't work out. But if you remember that big Boston trade where they got Adrian Gonzalez, Josh Beckett, the Nick Punto trade, <laughs> as we like to call it, they gave up uh, James Loney, Evanda Jesus Jr., Alan Webster, Ruby De La Rosa. They regret literally none of those players. None of those guys turned in anything. Um, and then, of course, you know they trade away Zach Lee to get uh, Chris Taylor. Well, yeah, that was very the, much post-type yeah, prospects. True. But, the, but the, what's interesting is you know it predates the Friedman regime. This actually goes back. So like, I don't know. You can't say that like is. This is clearly a philosophy of Friedman because it goes way back. You know, they 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 traded Annie LaRoche then, who was like a guy for half a season of Manny Ramirez, and that turned out pretty well. Yeah. Um, I mean, so, over the last few years, they maybe like Scott Shebler went to the Reds. Victor Arano, who they got for Roberto Hernandez, it's not a great one. He's been pretty good for Philly. Uh, if, if you count three-way deals, which I don't know that you really should, uh, and I know some people don't call these three-way deals because they happened like hours later, not instantaneously, but whatever. They had Andrew Heaney and Zach Eflin briefly as part of like, three-way deals going through the system, but they were not really prospects of theirs. Yeah, but they, they've done a really good job as an organization going back at least a decade of basically trading the right guys. Is that luck? Maybe. Is it? Does it mean that just their player development people are better than other people's player development people, and so when they trade guys away, they're they're not getting the right instructions? That could be a factor. It's probably a little bit of both, but it's interesting that the Dodgers have very aggressively trade prospects in recent years and it has not been them. Here's what the Dodgers have done. And obviously we cannot predict the future of the next 10 days or so. They have acquired who is almost certainly going to be the biggest name traded. You know, maybe DeGrom surprisingly gets moved, but I'm going to guess Machado is probably the best player traded <clears throat> this July. And so I thought that was interesting. And I went back and I looked at the history of July trades and went back to 1986, uh, a year selected because that was the year the trade deadline moved back from June 15th to July 31st. Manny Machado is projected to have 6.2 wins above replacement this year. And I wanted to know, well, where does that rank? Have there been guys who have been traded in July in the midst of better seasons than that? And the answer is yes, but not very many. 
Uh, and I wrote an article about this, which you can find on emily.com. And the list is pretty interesting. The top two names in this list were probably the first two names I would have thought of in terms of most impactful July trades. Uh, Randy Johnson in 1998 going from Seattle to Houston. CeCe Sabathia in 2008 going from Cleveland to Milwaukee. Those were deadline deals that panned out and then some. Yeah, they, um, actually uh, on Friday on MLB.com, so probably by the time you, you read this, uh, Anthony Castorvin said like a deep dive oral history on the 2008 trade deadline. That was the year CC Sabathia got traded to the Brewers, Mark Teixeira to the Angels, Mayor Ramirez uh, to the Dodgers. And there was a great detail um, in the piece, and I'll use this as a teaser to get you to, <laughs> to read it because there's a lot of great details in the piece, is that when the CC Sabathia trade happened um, – the Brewers and Indians could not decide on a fourth player. And they basically, it was Michael Brantley or someone else. I can't remember who it was. The guy's out of baseball now. Forget the name. But basically what happened, they agreed upon, is they basically said, the Brewers said, if we make the playoffs, you get to choose. If we don't make the playoffs, we get to choose. Basically saying, like, if we make the playoffs, we'll be so happy, we won't care who the fourth guy <laughs> is. So that was a pretty cool, cool uh Cool little way to sort of finalize a trade. Yeah, and if you look at the uh, the remainder of this list, like a lot of the names pop out, as you'd expect. Manny Ramirez in 2008, that makes sense, right? Ioannis Cespedes from Detroit to the Mets, that makes sense. Randy Velarde popped up on this list. What? Randy Velarde had a six-win season in 1999, was traded from the Angels to Oakland. Didn't really make a difference. They didn't go anywhere. But if you look at it, he actually had an objectively great season. He had 711 plate appearances, uh, on-base percentage of like 400, hit for power, Never did anything like that. He was already 36 at the time. That's one of the all-time great outlier seasons. It was also – there was also – I looked at it. It was like definitely he was getting a lot of credit for defense. So, sure. So take, take a look again, single-season defensive metrics, grain of salt. But still, he had like a 120 way to runs credit plus. Yeah, he was very good. Uh, so the point is I think we can honestly say that Manny Machado <clears throat> is one of the most valuable players ever traded at the current July deadline. And what was the most interesting about going through this list, guys like Scott Rowland in 2002, Cliff Lee twice – um, nobody on this list actually went to a team that won the World Series that year. However, nobody on this list failed to perform for their team. Every single player on this list went to their new team and continued to play very well, in some cases out of their minds, like Randy Johnson, uh, Manny Ramirez that year, Cespedes for the Mets. A couple of these guys got to the World Series, but nobody won the World Series, but not due to the impact of these players. So that's a good sign for the Dodgers, unless you believe in omens, in which case it's a terrible sign for the Dodgers. <laughs> I don't know. There was another trade that happened, like, I don't know, 90 minutes ago, two hours ago? Uh, Brad Hand. Brad Hand. And, and Adam Simber. And Adam Simber. I don't know that there was a more predictable fit of player and team than Adam Hand to the Ad- Adam Hand? Uh, <laughs> Brad Hand to the Cleveland Indians. Uh, because as everybody knows, the Cleveland Indians have had an atrocious bullpen uh, pretty much all year long. So now, you know, they hope they can get Allen turned around. Miller is almost back uh, from the DL, and now they're going to have Hand and Simber. And suddenly, that's a very interesting foursome. And I think that, you know... It's an interesting trade because neither of these guys are rentals, right? Simmer's a rookie somehow, which was shocking to me. He's 27 years old and he's a rookie and he's having a fantastic year. Uh, he turns 28 next month, 317 ERA in 48 innings, but a 241 expected weighted on base. That's an equivalent uh, of about a 245 ERA. And you had some interesting numbers on who he played with in college. This is your favorite part, I think. Always, yeah. I always like to, with, with random dudes. I always like to see where they, you know, where they came from. Um, he was born in Washington, uh, state of Washington, some random town. Um, played three years at the University of Washington, and then after three years of college, transferred to the University of San Francisco, where he was a college teammate of Bradley Zimmer, who will now be his teammate in Cleveland. Maybe Bradley Zimmer <laughs> hasn't been seen in Cleveland in a while. Yeah. Um, what I find interesting about this trade is that it's a. a it's very similar to the trade the Indians made two years ago to get 
Andrew Miller. At the time, they traded Clint Frazier, their number one prospect, to the Yankees for two and a half years of team of control of Andrew Miller. Justice Sheffield was in that trade too, I think. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, so two guys, but including their number one prospect, uh, Clint Frazier. Today, they trade their number one prospect, uh, Francisco Mejia, to the Padres for a reliever, an elite reliever with he has two and a half years control plus a team option. So essentially three and a half years of control. Which one's the elite reliever? I'm kidding. Yeah, I, no, I, no, like Brad Han's been really good, right? Yes. But Adam Simber's been unbelievable. I, have, oh, I mean, the, the, yeah, the numbers on him are ridiculous. This, this note from uh, our colleague Andrew Simon, I thought this was amazing. He said uh, that there were 281 pitchers this year who have allowed at least 100 batted balls. Adam Simber has allowed one barrel. That is 0.8%. That is the lowest rate of anybody in baseball. One barrel. And if you see him pitch, you can see why. He's got this like you know submarine sidearm kind of thing going on. He does not allow hard contact, uh, especially against right-handed batters. I think you dug this up, right? If you look at expected weighted on base against right-handed hitters, minimum of 100. Number one is Araldis Chapman. Makes a lot of sense. Number two, Adam Simber. <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so the Indians acquired, acquired the, the relief help they very much needed. I also love that Adam Simber uh, runs out to the bullpen, runs out from the bullpen to uh, Timber by uh, Kesha. Of course he does. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, and then obviously Brad Hand. I, mean, I feel like we're underselling Brad Hand a little bit, but uh, he's been a pretty – you know what else makes him very similar to Andrew Miller? He is this left-handed pitcher who was – Kind of a failed starter. With the Marlins. With the Marlins. <laughs> goes to the bullpen. Uh, I think he didn't actually gain a ton of velocity, as I remember. But he dropped some of his lesser pitchers, uh, pitches uh, and became fantastic. So I got to say, I really, really like this deal for Cleveland. I'm not sure about it from San Diego's point of view. I don't know that Mejia can actually catch. If he's like a decent hitting outfielder, well, they've got a lot of outfielders. And to get one guy for what what did we say, like maybe 11 or so years of control for these two relievers... It's it's risky. I mean, you know, our last uh, episode we had Adam Fisher, uh, former Mets and uh, Braves exec, on. He basically, you know, he talked about um, how different players, organizations will rank prospects, and Mejia seems like the exactly the kind of prospect that organizations would have wide opinions of, just because he's a catcher whose defense is in question. Um, that said, about a year ago, I mean, he still, Pipeline has him ranked as the 15th best prospect in the game. He's lost, there's a little bit of a prospect fatigue going on with him, because two years ago, he had that 50-game hitting streak, and everyone's like, oh, this guy's amazing. So, I wouldn't give up on him yet. I'll, I am fascinated by the fact, and I tweeted this out earlier, and I know it's not the same, because Hand has three and a half years, years of team control, but this guy was a waiver claim two years ago. And the fact that one day apart, Brad Hand essentially helped with Adam Simber bring in a better prospect than Manny Machado brought in. Still kind of mind blowing. <laughs> All right. So, Andrew Miller, Brad Hand, I'm going to tell you who the next failed Marlins lefty starter is that you want to pay attention to. Uh, I think we both know for this upcoming trade deadline, it's going to be the same as last year. Now that Machado's done, you're going to want to look for relievers. There aren't really any good starting pitchers out there. You know, Hap, Hamill's fine. Uh, everyone's going to be looking for relievers, especially these teams that are going to try to be bolstering their bullpen for the playoffs. So Alex Colomay is already traded. Hand is already traded. Simber is already traded. What's interesting about these relievers is it's not really about saves anymore. Obviously, there's a lot of guys who are pitching for teams you don't watch that much in, you know, middle relief situations who are really, really good. And when they get traded, people are going to be like, who? I don't know anything about this guy. So I thought it'd be interesting to come up with a list of some of these guys who I find fascinating. I will probably turn it into an article soon. And the number one guy on this list uh, is technically number two, if you're looking at my printout here, but I'm going to call him number one, Adam Conley, left-handed reliever for the Marlins. Uh, he's got three years of control remaining after this year, just turned 28. He spent most of the previous three seasons in the Marlins rotation, 
he showed some flashes. He was fine. He had some good starts. I think I remember this one time he really shut down the Mets and looked great doing it, but inconsistent at best. He had a 460 ERA in three years as a Marlins starter this year. He's in the bullpen, 288 ERA, but that doesn't begin to tell the story. And this is like my favorite stat here. If you look at last year and this year, there's almost 300 pitchers who threw at least 100 fastballs, forcing fastballs in both years. The biggest velocity gainer, Adam Conley, added over five miles an hour of That's velocity. Insane. It's crazy. Uh, he was at 89.7 last year, 94.9 this year. That is an enormous jump. And, you know, if you look at the top of this list, pretty much everybody on this list that I have here of velocity gainers started to, to relief, right? Amir Garrett, yes. Buck Farmer, yes. Seth Lugo, yes. Tyler Glasnow, yes. Colin McHugh, yes. I mean, this is kind of an old story. Now, you go to the bullpen, you drop some pitches, you throw harder. Um, but, man, five miles an hour, that's that's a lot. And look at the performance here. Last year, his strikeout rate was 16%. It's pretty well below average. This year, it's 31%. Last year, his expected weighted on base was 361, which is inflated and kind of terrible. This year, it's 292. And against uh, lefties this year, 125. 222 270 that's an incre- i mean that is that's the Brad Hand story right isn't that yeah and he, and the thing about Conley he's got 3 years of team control after this year so it's like you know the whether if you if you believe in him you have him like he should be actually be pretty valuable piece yeah um Marlins also have Kyle Bearclaw by the way maybe my favorite name in baseball Bearclaw he was himself a trade uh, a July trade for a reliever. He was traded from the Cardinals to the Marlins for Steve Ciszek a couple of years ago. He's been really good the last couple of years, three more years of control, uh, 12 strikeouts per nine, walks a ton of guys. But anyway, he's another guy you should know uh, from the Marlins bullpen. My next guy here, Ryan Presley. We've, we've, we've t- he's a big spin rate guy. We've oh, talked about him. Oh, but he's an even bigger spin rate guy than you can imagine. We have talked about him before, but just to reiterate, uh, he's been kind of kicking around the Minnesota bullpen for a couple of years, mostly anonymously. I couldn't believe it actually been there since 2013. I don't think I'd Where did the time go? thought about him since <laughs> this year. Um, his strikeout rate is up from 24% to 34% this year. That's very, very good. Uh, listen to some spin numbers here. 159 pitchers have thrown 100 curves. He has the second highest spin rate. And the first highest spin rate of those who are still active, because number one is Garrett Richards. Poor one out. We're so sad about that. Uh, right, right behind him is Seth Lugo. Right behind him is Seth Lugo. So uh, of active pitchers or of relievers, we'll call it best spin rate on his curveball in baseball. 379 pitchers have thrown 104 seam fastballs this year. Ryan Presley is, I should have counted this out, eighth. He has the eighth highest fastball spin rate uh, behind some names you recognize. We've talked about Carl Edwards, Verlander, Richards. 269 pitchers have thrown 100 sliders this year. He has the fourth highest velocity behind three Mets, which I didn't realize until right this second. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> Noah Syndergaard, Zach Wheeler, Jacob deGrom, Ryan Presley. That's cool. And then this is uh, the most interesting because we don't actually see this a lot. He has improved his spin rate on his fastball and his curveball pretty consistently in each of the four seasons of StatCast. Uh, the first year, his spin rate on his fastball was just below 2,400. Now it's just below 2,600. On his curveball, it was uh, about 2,850. Now it's almost 3,200. There is some correlation between spin and velocity for an individual pitcher, so I think that's part of it, but he's also changed himself. He's changed his release point. He's moved towards the first base side of the rubber. Uh, that, I think we are learning a lot. Like Just look at Trevor Bauer, right? Look at Adam Adovino. There are things you can do to improve the way your pitches move. And I, I can't speak to Presley specifically in terms of what he's done, um, but he's a, one of those guys with no saves and no wins and a 360 ERA, and some team's going to trade for him, and everybody's not going to know who he is, and I'm going to be like, yeah, you got Ryan Presley. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's interesting because his spin numbers were already like 
on the high end, you know, he, was, he probably went from like 85th percentile in four-seam and curveball spin rate to now like 99th percentile in both. Yeah, uh, and I think some team's going to trade for him, and I just really hope it's the kind of team that appreciates that. Like, him to the Astros makes unbelievable amounts of sense. The Dodgers, any team like that, I could, I could really uh, enjoy seeing that happen. Kirby Yates is another Padre reliever on this list. He's got two more years of arbitration left, and uh, he was actually suggested to us by a listener, Will Rich, a few weeks ago. We just didn't get to it today, so thank you, Will, because he's perfect. The thing about Kirby Yates is he was not good for several years. He came up in 2014, and uh, from 2014 to 2017, he pitched for the Rays and the Yankees and the Angels and the Padres. Uh, Every single one of those moves was a waiver claim or a purchase. He was actually uh, never pitched for them, but was also with Cleveland for a minute there. I think he was one of those guys we talked about that anonymous second part of the Yankee bullpen like two years ago where yes. it, was like, it was like him and uh, like Blake Parker, I think, and three other guys who had, oh, uh, uh, Tyler Olson, like all these guys who ended up somewhere and being great. Yes. <laughs> um, anyway, he had a 478 ERA from 2014 to 2017. Right now he's got a 143 ERA. There's more to life than ERA for relievers, but that is objectively impressive. And sometimes it's not that hard to see what's changed in the same way that Adam Conley has added velocity. Kirby Yates has added a new pitch. He has a fancy new split finger fastball, threw it 10% of the time last year, 35% of the time this year. Also moved from the first base side to the third base side. But listen to this, his strikeout rate is actually down. Last year, it was 38%, which is awesome. He was already quietly really good last year. This year, it's down to 32%. However, his ground ball rate is up from 29% to 50%. Fly ball rate has gone in the other direction, 56% to 29%. So now he's striking out of the third of the batters he faces, and half of the balls in play our grounders. That's a good combination. <laughs> I'm interested in that. Yeah. He's the pitcher I want Luis Perdomo to be. <laughs> oh, my God, that's amazing. Yes. Uh, he actually talked recently to David Laurel of Fangraphs, and he basically said, when I was in New York, there were a couple guys who threw splitters, Jason Shreve and Evaldi and Tanaka, uh, and they all showed him some grips. Like, he liked Tanaka's grip, and Shreve talked to him about arm speed, and that's the kind of thing I just find the most fascinating. It's like, these are guys who, you don't get to the big leagues without talent, but sometimes it's hard to use that talent, and you get a new pitch like that, and you learn it from guys like that, this guy's got a career now. Yeah, and uh, right after the hand trade went down, our own Mark Feinstein was reporting that uh, he was uh, he's hearing look for Yates to be the next Padres reliever to move. Um, they're obviously trying to rebuild. They now the Padres literally now have ten of Pipeline's top one hundred prospects. So uh, the the Padres are interesting. Where where is Dave Cameron on that list? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the Padres are are extremely interesting, and uh, they've also got Craig Stammen, who does not fit any of these profiles whatsoever. He's going to be 35 years old in March. You you kind of forget about him. He was a, a swingman for the Nationals, like when the Nationals were bad. Yeah. You know, like back when they were, uh, you know, drafting uh, Strasburg number one overall. Stammen was one of their starters. Uh, was in the minors with Cleveland in 2016. He's resurfaced with the Padres. 3.06 ERA, 102 games. He's under contract next year for two million dollars. Uh, there are some interesting names out there. I think we're going to see so many relievers flying. A lot of them you're you're familiar with. Jury's familiar is almost certainly going to get traded. But these middle relievers don't have big names. But there's big production to be had yeah and the, the, the one the one team that's gonna be interesting in all of this is the astros because they're almost certainly going to acquire at least one relief pitcher um the thing is they're not in a rush they're obviously gonna win they're, any reliever they're they're gonna acquire they're doing it for october like they don't they're gonna win the division they're gonna run away with it but it's interesting because it's like they'll probably go down to the wire so it'll be interesting to see how t- other teams who are trying to sell relievers are going to react to this team that clearly wants to add bullpen help but is willing to wait until the 11th hour. I would really enjoy it if this if this year the Astros did actually go trade for Zach Britton. That would have to, because they had that agreement last year and it fell apart. And true, but of course there was a report today that the Cubs are in on him. The Cubs might not want to wait. So 
they're, if they want them, they may actually have to go back, go and get them, go, go and get them a little earlier. So there's a lot of, a lot of like backdoor machinations at play. I love, trades are awesome. All right. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm backing Ryan Presley. You're backing Kirby Yates. We'll, uh, we'll see what happens. Speaking of the trade deadline, right? There are some teams with some uh, big holes that need to be fixed. Cleveland clearly needed some bullpen help, and they went out and did just that. Um, I don't think, like I said, the Machado trade for the Dodgers actually filled a hole. It just made the, the great team even better. But I wanted to know what were the biggest holes that a contender might need to fill. So the way I did that is I went to Fangraphs, and I looked at their projected uh, wins above replacement values for each position for the rest of the year. And the reason I did that is because you can't just look at first half production and expect the same thing in the second half. You want to look at projections going forward. So that's exactly what I did. And I took the top 10 most interesting positions. And I say that these aren't all the needs. These are just the biggest ones, obviously only looking at contenders. So we've got a list here of 10 spots. And as uh, they're all projected to be below average spots for teams who are very much in the race. And as I think we go through these, none of these are going to be super surprising to you, but I do think some of them may surprise you in terms of just how dire the situations are there. If you haven't been paying close attention for me, I started with Milwaukee and everybody thinks they need a starter and they probably could. Um, they really need middle infield help, like really badly. So they could have used Machado. Um, Jonathan VR has had two straight poor seasons at second base. Uh, Oswaldo Arcia has been sent back to the minors twice. He's their young shortstop. He's a good defender. He's just not hitting at all. Did you know before you read this article that I had sent you, did you know who was starting a shortstop for Milwaukee right now? Uh, I did not. Do you currently know? I don't know because I haven't read it yet. Cool. Tyler Saladino. <laughs> that sounds familiar. <laughs> um, and that's not really where you want to be. If you combine second base and shortstop for the Milwaukee Brewers, they've hit 226, 281, 333. That is the 30th ranked mark out of 30 teams. In the middle infield, um, that is not exactly where a contending team wants to be, especially with the Cubs starting to look pretty good. Uh, Brian Dozier? Yeah, I mean, last night, as, as soon as the Machado trade happened, Rosenthal was reporting that the Brewers are going to turn their sights on uh, Dozier, which makes all kinds of sense because uh, he's a rental, so he's not going to cost a lot, and he's a huge upgrade. So it just makes perfect sense for – and they, they also don't – the Brewers don't have a great system. Um at least they don't have the, a lot of high-end guys, but they easily have the kind of guys to get you Dozier for uh, for a half season. So that's that seems like too obvious not to happen. I'm going to say that uh, they get a Danny Duffy Whit Merrifield package from Kansas City. Oh, interesting. Because they could use help at both spots, and Kansas City obviously needs to rebuild everywhere. And Merrifield, would you trade? Would you trade Keston here for those two guys? Uh, they're not rentals. They're not rentals. I think you kind of have to. Yeah, I guess. I guess so. I'd rather do it for Jacob DeGrom, but that's probably not enough. Yeah. Um, speaking of a team that needs middle infielders and could have definitely used Manny Machado, the Arizona Diamondbacks, which we talked about at length recently, but it's kind of the same thing. Uh, if you look at second base, they've had Cattell Marte, who hasn't really hit much. Nick Ahmed is a good fielder, hasn't really hit much. Jake Lamb hasn't really hit much either. So they're a different spot because, you know, Ahmed's a good fielder. Marte's a fine fielder. They're not going to go for like a Jose Iglesias type, or they're not going to go for a Hechevarria. They've already got a good fielder who can't really hit. So they're either going to stand pat, I think, with good fielding, or they're going to go get someone who can hit. I'm going to say Eduardo Escobar. He's going to crush in the ball. can play short, can play some third. He's not the fielder these guys are. That's fine, but they need some bats. Yeah, I mean, they need to do something. If they want, if they have illusions of sticking, of keeping, beating the Dodgers, 
I mean, it's, that's the double whammy of the Machado trade. It's not only losing him, yeah. but him going to the team you're you're fighting for for the division. Speaking of which, the Philadelphia Phillies, not the division, but in the NL, they were big on Machado to play either short or third. And as I went through this, I realized that a left side infielder for young National League teams is kind of a recurring theme here because right after the Phillies, we're going to talk about the Braves. Um, obviously, J.P. Crawford has not panned out as expected this year. Scott Kingery has really not panned out as expected this year. No, and they gave him that they gave him that long-term deal. Yeah, that is uh it's been a, a stunning uh, season for for Scott Kingery. Uh if you look at shortstops, the team has combined to hit 235, 284, 350, third weakest in baseball. Uh Michael Franco has long been inconsistent at third base, so I don't know where they're going to go for shortstop. I feel like they might not actually do anything at shortstop that they couldn't get Machado. Um is Mike Mustakis an upgrade? Over Michael Franco, uh, I'm not really sure. Um, I don't think so. Yeah, I, I Machado's probably a better defender, I guess. I mean, I think that the thing about the Phillies is they definitely, you know, I think they're they're probably surprised themselves a little bit by where they are this year, but they don't want to blow things up. They're they're they, they feel like their window's just beginning, and I think that they are going to be heavily in on Machado. Oh, yeah. this offseason and Harper and Harper uh, um, Escobar could work there too. Yeah, uh, and then the Braves. Johan Camargo has actually played kind of okay at third base. I like Camargo. Yeah, he's still he's popped. Got a, he's got a hose. Oh, my God, yes. He still popped up on my list just because he doesn't have a lot of a track record. Um, I don't know that I would actually trade for Mistakas to play over Johan Camargo unless you wanted Camargo to be more of like a multi-positional infielder. Um, I could see them also going for Escobar and maybe Ryan Presley, right? I like these packages. What's the thing is if you just want to add a reliever, there's as, as Mike just noted, there's all sorts of upgrades available. So that's why every year in July, just like – Every rebuilding team has relievers that are like, well, I can, you know, get a, a better long-term asset, and I'll, I'll flip them right now. So, you know, all these, basically, every contender acquires at least one reliever. When I said I was looking at the spots that were projected for uh, less than one win above replacement, I threw out the teams that were not contending, and I also threw out the spots where I, it just didn't seem likely that a trade would actually be made, like left field for Atlanta. They're not going to go replace Ronald Acuna; it's just not going to happen. And I thought for sure when I started this that Colorado first base would be top of my list because we've been talking about this forever. Have you realized that Ian Desmond's actually been crushing? He's been raking. The last two months, Ian Desmond has hit 291, 381, 549. I'm not, Take that, Petriello. I'm not buying that going forward, but it is enough that they're not going to go out and trade for a first baseman now. So instead, we focus on, well, we know they're going to need relievers. Everybody's going to need relievers. Rockies corner outfielders on either side of Charlie Blackman. This is the least surprising thing in the world. David Dahl couldn't stay healthy. Geraldo Parra isn't really hitting. Carlos Gonzalez isn't really hitting that much. Uh, if you look at Colorado left and right fielders combined, they've had the second weakest production in the game. Here's the thing. They're not going to do anything about this. They never do, right? Like, Can you actually see them trading for anybody, or is no, it but, all bullpen? Uh, probably not, but I'm looking at your sheet here, and you list uh, Adam Duvall as a possible fit. I love that as a fit because, as we've talked about on this podcast before, he's actually a very good defensive outfielder, so he'd be – Good in cores. And he's been hitting a lot lately. We talked about his expected weighted on base, and he seemed, he'd seemed been very unfortunate. In the last couple weeks, he's actually been crushing the ball pretty well. But the Reds, have, I mean, the Reds aren't contending, but I'm actually not sure that they're going to like... No, they're not going to blow it up. They're not going to trade like Rice. Like also, Brett, I mean, Duvall, I now see, is, is just entering arbitration this year, so probably not. But it, he would make sense. He's one guy who actually would go to Colorado and be an asset in the outfield. So Cleveland's not done, I don't think. Obviously, they got their bullpen upgrade. Their outfield is rough, and we I'm pretty sure before the season I said there was not a single Cleveland outfielder I believed in. Michael Brantley has proved me wrong. He's been fantastic this year. Um, 
Bradley Zimmer has not. Uh, and he's hurt. He's, he's got hurt. A, he's got a bum shoulder. Lonnie Chisenhall is hurt. Calf, I think it was. Tyler Naquin, you know, Brandon Geyer. You combine center field and right field. 238, 296, 334. That is the lowest of any of those 30 groupings of center and right field. Um, but they don't need to get somebody to win the division. They're going to win the division. So this is about who do you want in the playoffs? And so it's kind of tough. Like you don't want to give up a ton for a guy for three games, but you also can't go into a series against, you know, Chris Sale or Luis Severino, whoever you're going to see with that kind of an outfield. I'll tell you who I like here, partially because they've also got a DH spot, Nicholas Castellanos. Perfect here. I don't care that they're in the same division. I truly don't. I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure Detroit is inclined to trade him. No, but they should be. That's the thing. Um, a couple of teams fighting one another. I'm so excited about this race. Did you know the A's are only three games behind Seattle for it's the just, second wild card? This is the, this is the most fun race in baseball. Oh. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend September getting no sleep following this race on the West Coast. Because that's why I'm fascinated by both these teams. They're, they're, they're run in interesting ways. Um, the Mariners have that long postseason drought. So it's just like... It's it's going to be a great race. We I mean we all said that the Seattle one run magic just could not possibly last. This has turned so quickly. They now have they have a, they're eighteen games above five hundred and they have a negative run differential. <laughs> I'm, I'm not I'm not making that up. No, they've been like five hundred for the last couple of weeks. Anyway, they both need starting pitching, right? And that's uh, based on the projections going forward. Uh, part of that is for you know the A's. They have had like no success keeping anybody healthy in the A's rotation right now. Edwin Jackson, Brett Anderson, and Trevor Cahill. That is, that's a lot for your rotation. So yeah, we've also said that the uh, the rotation market is not great. There's not a trace out there, but that's okay. The A's don't need an ace. They need, Jay Happ would be great here. The Hamels would be fine here. They need a slightly above average starter who can take some innings. I think that'd be perfect for them. Seattle's kind of the same thing. Paxton's been great, but he's got a little bit of a back issue. Felix has not been great. He's also got a bit of a back issue. Are you going to bet on Wade LeBlanc going forward? Well, they, they are. They just gave him a multi-year yeah, deal. Okay, but yes, like I know what you mean. Very low-cost multi The guy who's going to get traded to the Mariners is Nathan Eovaldi because the Rays and Mariners yes. make a trade like every other week. And I, I, it's my least favorite trade pairing because their uniforms look alike and it just gets all confusing. Um, you're probably right. Two other spots here. The Red Sox need a second baseman. Dustin Pedroia played three games. He's out again. He's probably not going to be back this year. Brock Holt's been okay. Eduardo Nunez has not. He's been a disaster. Uh, Red Sox second baseman have hit 254, 297, 352, the sixth weakest at the position. Yes, I know they signed Brandon Phillips to a minor league deal. That's not really the answer. Uh, Dozier would be fine here. Is Drupal Cabrera? I could see here. I could easily see that here. Right. And the Mets and uh, Red Sox made a trade last uh, last uh, last uh, deadline. Addison Reed. Addison Reed. And one of those guys came up for the Mets, whose name I can't remember. Well, the Mets have brought up all the relievers. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> um, and finally, Nationals catcher. If the Nationals, oh, no, my boy Gerson Bautista came. It was one of the pieces in that trade. There you the guy, go. Guy, if there's a hundred, doesn't know where it's gone. Um, I don't know that the Nationals are actually going to be in the race, uh, but let's assume that they are for now. Did you realize that Matt Wieters has not had a league average hitting season of at least 300 plate appearances since 2012? That's crazy. Uh, he's been hurt for most of the year. He's back now. <laughs> this is uh, the Nationals catcher. So Severino, Pedro, uh, excuse me, Pedro Severino, Wieters, Spencer Kubum have hit 184, 270, 267. Unsurprisingly, the weakest line of any backstops. That is the weakest line of any National League catching pair group in at least a decade. Wilson Ramos makes the most sense here. I know he's hurt. It doesn't matter. He'll be back. They're not going to go get JT Romuto. It's got to be Wilson Ramos. The All-Star game on Tuesday, the ovation that Wilson Ramos oh, got yeah. was like, it was the loudest the ovation. Buffalo. Yeah, it was the loudest ovation like anyone got. Um, so, I don't know. Um, the Nationals, it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. I'm going to put you on the spot. It is the, it's Thursday, right? It's Thursday? I think Thursday. it's Thursday. 
We'll probably tape again next Wednesday or next Thursday. What? Who is the biggest name traded before we come back on the air? Um, I'm going to say biggest name traded. I think Zach Britton. That's exactly what I was going to say. I think that's the right answer. I think that now that the Orioles have kind of opened the gates, um, unless you think like Kirby Yates is a big name, but probably not. I think, yeah, Zach Britton. Well, I just think also because I think there's a couple factors at play, despite what I said about the Astros before. Because I think the Astros might want to wait it out, but given Britain's recent injury history, and he's pitching well now, I think the Orioles are, motiva- are motivated sellers right now. Um, those are extremely valid points, and I agree with you. We will see what happens the next time we tape. This is the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. Thanks for listening. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.